I, uh, I think a lot of times people just want it boiled down. And, and I've seen that especially here at Fellowship of Faith, just you know, kind of give it to us simply, lowest common denominator, break it down, give it to it basic, you know, in its most basic form. So I am, and here it is. We want you to know God. It's what we want here for each of you. You know, whether you're someone who, who is a Christian and has claimed to know God and love God for as long as you can remember, or someone who uh, feels themselves as far from God as humanly possible, or maybe you're someone who doesn't even know if they believe in God, or maybe even quite sure that God doesn't exist. Regardless, we want each of you to know God. We want people in this world to know God. We think that he's paradoxically incomparable and unknowable and yet simultaneously makes himself known and so can be knowable. It's interesting, you know, I talk to a lot of people from a lot of walks of life and there's a lot of people who tell me that they don't believe in God or they're not sure if they believe in God anymore. And then I always enjoy talking to people like that and, and hearing their idea of who God is. And it's funny, more times than not, when I talk to people who say they don't believe in God but then describe God to me, I find myself in agreement with them going, yeah, I don't believe in him either. I, I, I don't believe in that God either because oftentimes I find that the image we have for God is not actually God. We're all so, so guilty of this, aren't we? It's so easy to make a mold or cast a picture of God that fits with our feelings and thinking and ideas of who he's supposed to be. And whoa, it is really close to the edge. You know, we're kind of like standing right there when we do it because just a nudge and we kind of go over the cliff into territory of believing and worshiping a God who really isn't God at all. And it's got to drive God nuts. Like, would you agree, like, when you want someone to know you and they insist on calling you or naming you or describing you in ways that aren't quite true or even if they're true in part, are distorted, it's got to drive them nuts. You ever have someone do that to you? I got to be honest, I'm like looking at the election this coming Tuesday going, this has to be the lament of every politician since elections have begun. A mis characterization and over-polarization, an idea that we create in our own mind about what he's really like, latching on to a couple of things or maybe even a number of things, but by it shaping the whole. It's gone on forever. Many of us who have ever gone to middle school, have you ever gone to middle school? You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Where a reputation gets made, and some of us would just seek to avoid a reputation. Altogether, we would live underground a little bit, and that in itself would create an image in people's minds about who we are. And it's got to drive God nuts, just going, no. No, let me tell you who I am. Let me show you who I am. And we believe that God does that. 
that God is utterly incomparable to anything else that we could ever dream, and yet this incomparable God is desperate for you to know him. He wants you to know him. Because I believe that God thinks that if you know him, I mean, the real him, push aside the misconceptions, push aside the distortions, don't cut through all the bull and get to know the real him that you'll actually come to like him. That a lot of you who don't like God, maybe what you actually don't like is a distorted image that you've come to believe of who God is as opposed to who God actually is. Are you with me? And so at FOF, what we want is we want you to know God. We want you to know him because we think that if you know him, the real him, you'll actually come to like him. And if you actually come to like him, you'll probably actually draw close to him as he's seeking to draw close to you. And by drawing close to him, believe it or not, you might actually love him. Fall in love with him. Love spending time with him. Love being in his presence. Love doing things with him and sharing your life with him and opening yourself to him as he wants to open himself to you. The stuff of relationships. You know what I mean? It's why we spend so much time here at Fellowship of Faith trying to help you get to know God, it's not so that you can win trivia contests or feel good about yourself or feel like your brain is full or you can answer a test. It isn't just for the mental exercise of it all, even though it can feel that way sometimes, can it? No, it's for something so much richer and deeper that by knowing him, maybe you can know him. And by knowing him, maybe you come to love him come to love him more is he loves you. That's what we want for you here at Fellowship of Faith. But it's hard. I mean, it, 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 it could drive you nuts. Have you ever tried to get to know God? Of course you have. All of us have. From, from maybe the most minute kind of ways to others spending a life devoted to trying to know him. And it's so hard to kind of understand the incomparable. I've been thinking about this, trying to understand God. How, how do you understand or come to grasp someone who isn't like you at all? Let me start in very easy to understand terms and take it further. Who has ever gotten into a conversation in a foreign country with someone who doesn't speak English? I remember my wife and I were in Turkey a couple of years ago. And for the first few days of this trip, we were with a family that was doing incredible work in country, reaching out to people on the refugee highway. And we were meeting these people who were coming from Syria and people coming from Egypt and people coming from Afghanistan and people coming from other areas of North Africa and people coming from all of these areas of the Middle East, Iran and whatnot, looking for some kind of better life, speaking dozens of languages. And oh my gosh, were we lost. You know, you, you've been lost. But the last half of the trip, Tina and I ventured out on our own. We wanted to go to Ephesus, because really, why not? When you're in country and you're a pastor and you can't go to the biblical sites, you should be shot, right? 
And so it's like, we gotta try to get to Ephesus, but we're trying to read train schedules in a language that we have no frame of reference from. Now, come on, I mean, if it was in Spanish, if it was in German, you can kind of fake your way through it a little bit, but Turkish? And you're, oy, you're looking at this thing, and I remember a couple of things happened. One, we discovered very quickly in the country that it was considered more polite to give you wrong directions than no directions. Step two, therefore then ending up a million miles away from where we're supposed to be, finding a helpful attendant who spoke maybe twice as much English as we spoke Turkish, which amounted to two words, trying to help us get to this city. And do you know what the lifesaver was in that moment? Well, first it was a person willing to give the time to be understandable, because without that, there's no hope. But second, Google Translate. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But here we are, one human speaking to another human with shared feelings, shared understanding, shared experiences, different cultures, but sharing the commonality of humanity, still unable to really effectively communicate in any kind of effective way, and that's human to human. How much more difficult if you start stepping beyond the species? My wife, as a lot of you know, raises honeybees. Honeybees communicate with each other. We'll often start in April with a hive of like a pound of bees, which will multiply to, to a hive of maybe 60 or 70,000 bees. There's a nightmare on your property waiting to happen, right? But it's amazing how this, this species communicates with itself in ways that we would never dream. I'm no expert in this, but scientists will tell you that the ways bees communicate is by dancing. Tony, I think, up in our sound booth actually said he was gonna dance for us today at one point. Let's hope for that, maybe. <laughs> but they'll communicate by movement and things that we would characterize or analogize as dancing. And between pheromones and scents that they cast off and these dances that they learn, they can communicate with each other in precision. Imagine if you had to communicate with a bee. Like, like, where do you even begin? Like, how do I even excrete smells like this? Now, I've excreted some smells in my life. <laughs> but how do you excrete in such a way that communicates to a bee? Like, how do you have an intelligent conversation with a bee? Learn their movements, learn their dances, learn their language. Let's even take it a step further removed. Because even when we're communicating with the bee, while we're talking about a species that's different than ourselves, we're still talking about a living creature that has a will, that has a mind, that has motion and activity and intelligence, at least instinct. Behind it, there's still commonality. And how difficult is that? So let's take it a step further. Let's talk about talking to the trees. Do you know that the latest research indicates that trees communicate? 
with each other? That like what you see in the Lord of the Rings might actually be true? That trees have their own language. And they'll adapt and change and move and protect. And their very slow tree kind of way with each other, with changing seasons, with changing threats, with changing availability of water or light, that they'll adapt to one another in a way that's becoming more and more described as personality and communication that through electrical signals and scents and pheromones of their own, through chemical exchanges in the soil that they communicate. Imagine going home today and trying to have a conversation with your tree. We have these pines on our property that haven't been doing too well. Have you gotten the blight of the pine? Once full trees that have gone to the ground, blocking out the road and other kind of visual things that are now kind of dying up. I got to tell you how many times I've sat there wishing I could talk to that tree. Tell me what's wrong, tree. Tell me what I can do, tree. Tell me how I can help you, tree. I don't know how to do it. I have a knack in my life that every green thing I, tie, I touch turns to brown. And so I know that figuring it out on my own has brought me nowhere. Imagine trying to talk to a tree. And yet, we still share a commonality. We're still creatures of this world, sharing the same living space in need of many of the same resources, living symbiotically in life with one another. And yet, how do we communicate? Let's take it a hypothetical step further. Hypothetical, mind you. Let's say an alien species is discovered. Extraterrestrial, you know what I mean? Intelligent. An intelligence beyond our intelligence. An intelligence that no longer communicates with each other by sight or by sound or even by scent or touch, but telepathically. Where, where would you even begin? Where would you even begin if you had to bring it up of your own strength and energy to communicate? Try it right now with the person sitting next to you. Just try to communicate telepathically. And they're more like you than any alien intelligence would be. How do you do it? Now, hopefully you're following a certain development here this morning because this is where I want to bring you today. How much harder with God who is unlike any of these things. Because everything I just mentioned shares more in common with each other, you could argue, than with God. We are all his creation, all inhabiting this world, all with arguably the same needs. If what the Bible says is true, that God is truly incomparable. For the last three weeks, I've heard this church shout, there is no one like you. Do you actually believe it? Do you actually really think there is no one like you? Or 
Have you casted a God in your image who is more like you than he really is? Are you following what I mean? And here lies the problem. Because we want you to know God. And God wants you to know God. God wants to be known. But how do you understand How do you even wrap your mind around someone who is so different than you that you don't even know where to begin? This is what's so cool about God. There's this stream of thought through the Bible and central to Jesus that God reveals himself. Now, I've got to give a moment pause, because whenever I say that, I always sound like I'm making God sound like a flasher or something like that. You know, it's just, it's, it sounds horrible, but that's the, that's the language that it uses. That's the biblical language and the theological language, revelation that God would never really be knowable, not really, by our own efforts. So God chooses to reveal himself to you, that God speaks. And that when God speaks, he doesn't expect you to learn his language, but rather chooses to lower himself, to stoop down and speak in a way where you would understand. Theologians have a term for this. It's called condescension. That God is condescending. Now I say that and it doesn't sound good that way. It sounds like calling him a flasher, right? It sounds like God reveals himself, God is kind of, no, 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 no. No, because what it actually means to condescend is to come down to someone else's level. And that's what God does. God does not expect you to go up to his level to understand, but God chooses to come down to your level where your understanding would be and make you known in that place, in that sphere. I love how John Kelvin would put this. He says, God likes to speak with a lisp. And what he means by this is he would say how God likes to talk like a babysitter would talk to a four-year-old child. Have you ever talked to a four-year-old child? It's a little bit different than the way that you talk to your parents, isn't it? Than your boss, isn't it? Well, maybe on some days. But, But you know what I mean, right? You talk to a young child in a very deliberate way to help yourself be understood by them in a way that you don't have to speak to someone more on par with you as your peer. How do we talk to little kids? We get sing-songy, right? Everything's like a little, ah. These lilts of the voice, these cadences we bring, big words, not in syllables, but in the way that we speak them. Simple phrases. Do you like cookies? Would you like a cookie? No. You can't have that. Mommy loves you. Any 47-year-old men out there who have their mother come up to them and go, Mommy loves you. It's weird, right? No, we condescend. We condescend, and that's actually where the idea of being condescending comes from. When you talk to someone who doesn't have to be spoken to at a certain level, and you treat them like they're at that level, 
But you know what? God knows better. We need to be treated, don't we? Like we're at that level. Because when it comes to the mind of God and the mind of the most brilliant person in this room, sitting right there, I needed points. You follow me? When it comes to the mind of God, to the most brilliant people sitting in this world today, I mean, the chasm is greater than us in trees. It's greater than, greater than us in bees. God comes down and speaks to our level. And what do we understand better than anything? People. Ourselves. Because we live with ourselves. We live in ourselves. We're occupied with ourselves. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, I'm 70 years old and I still don't feel like I know myself. I've been married for 52 years and I still don't know that woman. You, you know what I mean? I, I get it. I get it. But you do know more about her or yourself than the bees and the trees. Would you agree? We know ourselves. And so what does God do? He condescends. And what the pages of the Bible are filled with is God trying to speak with a lisp. God trying to make himself understandable and knowable in a way that we can grasp. And so what he loves and what you will see more than anything is God describing himself with human terminology as a human being. The thoughts that we have, the motives that we have, the relationships that we have, the organizations that we have. How does God speak relating himself to shepherds, to kings, to fathers? These are things that we understand, aren't they? And by which we start to get a window or a glimpse of God. And one of the things that you'll see more than anything in the Bible, especially in the pages of Isaiah, is that God loves to describe himself by human anatomy the hand of God, the eyes of God, the heart of God, the mind of God, the finger of God, the face of God. You know what I mean. Instead, what I want to talk to you just a little bit about is how you can get to know God better by understanding this part of your body right here. Everyone grab their elbow. We're going to talk today about everything you're grabbing right now all the way to your fingertip. Think about this part of your body and what it does. I think about a boxer, a fighter, and what they do with their arms, with their hands. They use it to ward off attack. They use it to block even in a real-life street fight situation, going like that, says, hey, man, I'm ready, but we're okay, doesn't it? As opposed to that, which is like, let's go. A boxer will use his hands both to strike an opponent, but also to deflect away. I think of my dad when I was a younger kid, who used to say, I can take you down with one little finger. And he would. You have a dad like that who would do that kind of stuff with you? Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And so what would I do? I would throw myself at my dad. I'd be kicking and throwing elbows and biting and slashing. Well, not really biting, but you know, you get the idea. You know, throwing myself at him. And he would play, holding back, letting me give it my all. And then he would just show who's boss. And here would come the finger. And not that finger. Here would come the finger. Boom, he would find a, a soft spot. He would find a pressure point, like up here in the collarbone, up under the rib. Anywhere in the body would really do, and dad would take you down. It's some of my best memories with my dad. No joke, it really is. It really is. It was a way that we bonded, a way that I could throw my all into him, and he would show restraint with a smile on his face, Not afraid to show me who's boss, but always in a way that I knew he loved me. My dad is playing with me. We would sit in church, kind of like where you're sitting right now. And the game in church, of course, was can we break dad's fingers? Dad would be sitting there, maybe arm around mom or maybe just arms stretched out. And like my brother and I would see it and we'd take hold of his hand and like just try to start snapping him. And of course, you're sitting in the front row of church, so there has to be decorum, right? And so the game really was, how can this game continue without anyone knowing what's going on? Like, none of you sitting in the back would know what was going on, right? I think of those things with his little finger. I think of Dad's arm, where we used to grab hold of it, and he would pick us up by it. It shows strength. You notice when people want to show strength, it's always the arm. No one ever flexes their glutes at you. <laughs> ever. Right? Why not? It's a bigger muscle. Right? No, what does the arm do? We understand strength by the arm. I think of the day that I almost never got married. The day that my kids almost never existed. It was the day that Tina was with her family, I think eighth grade, maybe younger. She doesn't know. And they're walking along a dam. And the water spillway is going over. And you've seen these, right? How treacherous they can be. And she slipped. And she started to go down. Except for her uncle who reached out his arm. Reached out his hand. And took hold of her. And pulled her back to safety. And whether it be lifeguards or soldiers or firefighters or anyone else who has ever done the same thing or maybe you grabbing someone back from harm's way. What else does a hand do? A a hand slaps something out of the way. Don't touch that stove. Don't touch that knife. Step back from the street. And yet it's the same hand that will cradle an infant, a newborn, up here in the arm with that hand on their head. I think of the way that a lover will come to the one that he is stricken by and stroke her hair back around her ear or gently touch her face or that first time when the hands graze Gently. And there's that moment of truth inside going, is there more here than we hoped in those fingers interlace? 
I think of a hand that's raised in pledge, promising on oath, or a hand that begs and pleads. I think of the work that's done with these things God has put in on these appendages of our body. The ability to communicate, to bless, but also to hurt. The ability to craft something, something intricate and beautiful and special, something helpful or practical, or something completely frivolous that will just bring joy to another. It's an amazing thing. The arm, isn't it? The fingers, the hand. And we have this God who says, I want to be known by you. Who chooses to speak our level and describe himself through these things. I want to give you just a bombardment of passages today to show you what I mean. In rapid fire, I'm just going to choose some verses from Isaiah to show you how God seeks to make himself knowable through these things. Let me show you 10 or 12 here today. Don't be afraid, for I am with you, God says. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. What will I do? I will uphold you with what? I'll take hold of you. I'll hold you with my righteous hand. What does he say? I'm holding you. I mean, you're in my grip. How does God want us to understand him and what he's doing for us? No, no, I've got you. I'm holding you by your right hand. I, Yahweh, your God. And I say to you, don't be afraid because what does a hand do? I'm here to help you. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does a clay pot ever argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does your work say he has no hands? Does your God have hands, or do you accuse him of being an amputee? My own hand, he says, laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand spread out the heavens. The palm of my right hand spread out the heavens above. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And yet, O Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. What does he say? All day long I have held my hands out. Begging, pleading, reaching to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own thoughts. Does your image of God say that God only reaches out to the good people, the righteous people, the Christian people, the holy people? If so, you've made a false image of the God who wants to be known by you. All day long, I hold my hands out to obstinate people. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. Yeah, you whose ways are not good. Who pursue your own thoughts and not his. I love these passages of 
the hand. See, Yahweh comes with power. Let's talk about arms. And his arm rules for him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Or how about this? My righteousness draws near. My salvation is on the way. My arm will bring justice to the nations. How about this? Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to say, what dam are you falling down? What dam are you sliding down? What path of damnation are you going to? Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And you gotta love this one. Jesus saying, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That even the forces of hell in this world can be brought down by God's little finger, that he can flick them away like a gnat. Turn to the person next to you and flick them, especially someone you don't know. Are you understanding what God is trying to say to you? Or are you still insisting and understanding him purely by your own image? God is lisping. He's trying to make himself known. He's trying to help you wrap your mind around what he's like. If your conclusion at the end of the day is that, well, God must have two hands, you've missed the point. No, what do you understand by this image about the one who is trying to make himself known to you? And this is the great irony of God. The more I feel I get to know him, the more I think he has got a sense of irony and a sense of humor. Because this God who seeks to speak in these metaphorical kind of ways, then goes hyper-literal and actually takes on two hands. Because the greatest way you'll ever know God is by Jesus, who doesn't just God trying to speak like us, but actually becomes like us and goes, look at what I actually do with actual hands. Let me show you a few today. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? Ah, be healed? No, he reached out his hand. It's different that way, isn't it? He touched the unclean. He risked disease. He interacted with that which is gross and disgusting. He reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I'm willing, be clean. And the power of God was evident that day. What does it say? It said that when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And what did he do? He touched her hand. He took his hands and touched hers. There's something different about this than this, isn't there? He takes her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. I think of this. That some pe- this one's so gross. Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand 
on the man. Are we seeing something with the hand of God here today? So what's Jesus do? He takes him away from the crowd. He puts his fingers into the man's ears. You ever try this when you pray for someone? Put their fingers, your fingers into their ears? I suggest it. And if that doesn't work, take it to the next level. Spit on your hands and then touch their tongue and pray for them that way. Do that today if someone says, would you pray for me? I just have this picture around the dinner table. <laughs> Stick them out, boys. Mm. He takes his hands, his fingers, his spit, and he looks up to heaven and with a deep sigh says, Ephtha. You wouldn't understand what that means, but God condescends. Because you understand everything before it, don't you? And the man's ears are open, his tongue is loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Let me give you a few more. Little children were brought to Jesus to place his hands on them and pray for them. And what does Jesus do? He takes them up in his arms and he puts his hands on them and he blesses them. I think of this, where Jesus said the Father loves the Son and has placed everything where? In his hands. I think of this, where he says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish because you know what? No one, no one can snatch them out of my hand when God has you in his hand. Nothing, and I mean nothing, can break his fingers and get you out of his grip. I think of Peter when he saw the wind and is terrified and panicking and sinking and crying out, Lord, save me. Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. Let's not miss this. When Jesus says, I say to you all, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let's never forget this, that Jesus was handed over to you. Yeah, you. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing nails in his hands on a cross that all of us, by our hands, are in some way culpable of putting those nails in his hands. But this God took in his hands every wound you could give him. I think of this. When Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The last thing he says before breathing his last. And it was Jesus who three days later come and stood among them who were culpable of nails in his hands and then now they stand face to face with the one that they crucified and said, peace be with you. Why are you troubled? 
Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. Do you hear God saying, look at my hands? Know me. He even said to Thomas, put your finger here. If the spit thing wasn't gross, this has nothing, you know? Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out and put your hand in my side. Feel the wound. Stop doubting and believe because there is a God. There is a God who is incomparable but wants to be known by you. It's a God who will speak your language of what he does, of what he's like in a way that hopefully today you can relate. Get to know this God. Whether you know him a lot or know him a little, get to know him more. Get to know him by the means by which he chooses to be known.